I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, James A. Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director from the Strategic Technologies Program here at CSIS. Jim is working on the most pressing challenges posed by digital technologies and how these technologies are reshaping politics, international security, and innovation. Jim, thank you so much for being on the program with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So much of the work that you do focuses on issues that are closely related to CVE. Can you elaborate a bit on how your work intersects with concerns about radicalization and recruitment online? Well, we have a couple different uh, initiatives in the program. One looks at the uh, political effect of the Internet and how it's changed politics. Uh, One looks at the sort of decline of the Western worldview, or not so much the decline, but the growth in challenges to it and how this plays out in what the Russians would call the information space. Um, We have one on uh, surveillance and encryption and how you stay abreast of uh, potential threats. So those, I think, I'm probably leaving something out, but those are probably the three that are most relevant. Yeah, and as you know, I mean, one of the things that is contested in the literature, but also mm-hmm. in the practitioner community, is how salient the internet is as a tool for terrorists mm-hmm. in reaching out to potential recruits and radicalizing them. Some people think it's you know a major factor and that people can be radicalized solely online, mm-hmm. whereas other people think that it's a factor, but that you have to have you know the human touch from somebody in order for somebody to make that transition um, into violence. I mean, how do you see it? Do you think that the internet and social media platforms are a huge part of the challenge or a smaller part of the challenge? Like, where do you come down on that debate? Well, we, we actually did a review of the literature a couple of months ago uh, to try and figure that out because I was at a, a, a dinner with uh, Peter Neumann of uh, King's College, and I asked Peter if he thought that our, uh, our, our online propaganda uh, against uh, terrorism would be just as effective if we replaced it with uh, videos of mooing cows. And um, knowing how good the U.S. is a propaganda, that's what prompted my question. Plus, I'd been in the airport in Geneva where when you take the train, they have the mooing cows and the cowbells and everything. So, And he said yes. He thought it wasn't a big factor because uh, he said, look, if the Internet was a big factor in recruitment, look at the terrorists in Belgium. They're not only all from the same town, they all live on the same street. So it's the, the bars, the schools, the jail time that creates the network. And at the time, I thought, yeah, that probably makes sense. But as I reflected on it, I decided maybe it doesn't make sense. How does that explain recruitment in Australia 
or in the U.S. So that's what we were looking for is there maybe in Europe it's more of the physical contact, but in more remote areas, Australia and the U.S., it's the online connections that uh, promote radicalization. And it's not perfectly clear in part because we don't fully understand. I don't believe the literature fully understands what radicalizes people. So it's hard to say, yes, it was this or no, it was that. In some of the cases, very often there's an initial online phase followed by a trip to Chechnya or to uh, Syria or someplace like that. Um, then coming back and continuing the online. So it's a it's a mixed bag, but my sense is that certainly for uh, uh, places that aren't physically contiguous with the Middle East, the, the Internet plays a central role. Right, and something that you alluded to in your answer is that it's difficult for governments to do messaging effectively, mm-hmm. in part because of bureaucratic constraints, in part because we're just not the most credible messengers. Um, so I'm wondering, as terrorist organizations are able to adapt very quickly adopt different means of getting their messages out, they use different kinds of technologies. What do you see in the evolution in terms of what terrorists are now using in order to get their message out and reach their potential um, pool of recruits? Well, I think the uh, social networks are a a great trolling ground for them where they can find people who uh, maybe are a little discontented and you know how people surf and they come across something that suggests they might be amenable to recruitment. So that's that's the main thing I've seen. Uh, you have a very slick operation when it comes to propaganda. Uh, sort of a, a commonplace, but there's a part of the population that will always be attracted to the, the violence in the videos about violence and the threats of violence. But you can see it with right-wing groups. Uh, yep in uh, Europe and the U.S. So there's a part of the population that is recruitable and uh, attuned to violence. Fortunately, it's very small, but I think that's where these techniques of combining uh, YouTube and Twitter and some of the other social networks can have an effect. So think of it as a recruitment strategy that has been developed partially by thought and partially by learning experience what actually works. In thinking about it as a recruitment strategy, do you think it's effective for the U.S. government and its allies to focus on taking down propaganda that is being disseminated on those platforms, or is it just a case of whack-a-mole? It's whack-a-mole, but I still think we have to do it. Mm -hmm. There is not a systemic solution that's consistent with our commitment to freedom of speech. So you're kind of stuck. So I think whack-a-mole is the way to go. And you could... uh, maybe be a little more assertive in whack-a-mole, but it's very hard because the nimbleness of these groups in creating uh, a continuous online presence um, makes it hard for us to do this. So ideally, there'd be some counter strategy uh, where we would show videos. I had a friend from the Middle East tell me that one of the problems with our propaganda, he says, look, it's not the same thing as, as selling soda pop. Right. So it's like, yeah. We're well, doing, yeah, because oftentimes yeah. people are like, you know, we're the best advertisers in the whole world. Right. We can sell people things that they don't even need. Why are we having such a hard time selling our values? Yeah, and that's usually the advertisers who are telling you that because the the way it actually works is very different. So 
we we were we have never been good at this counter propaganda stuff. If the intent is to match them fairy tale for fairy tale, uh, I think what I've seen has been the most effective, and you might know better, is letting people know what it's actually like to go, what you're going to experience, um, how likely you are to die, and that seems to have an effect. So we could do a better job of that. There's always a bureaucratic reluctance, um, but you know, just making the case, here's the reality, here's what they tell you online, here's the reality. Um, that might be the best we can do combined with whack-a-mole. Well, I wanted to, I want to press you on that a little bit, mm. given your experience looking at Russian disinformation. What did they do that's effective in shaping values or spreading their point of view that we're not doing in the CVE space. They have a negative agenda, and that makes it easier for them. Their goal is to disrupt, uh, to split the transatlantic community, to discredit uh, Western democracy. We could learn a little bit of that in terms of discrediting uh, violent extremism. And I think that um, the way you would have to do that is probably by something like the uh, personalize of the leaders of these groups. but. That might be the only place where it's it's the same kind of thing because we we have a basically defensive strategy, and they do not. Also, they don't care. I mean, their goal is to create confusion and disruption. Um, so if they score one or a hundred, they're happy. Uh, for us, it's a little more complicated. So they're just trying to create sort of disarray in the information space and enough confusion that... Oh, man, it's... just get over the Cold War. Come on. <laughs> I mean, okay, so you guys didn't win. Yeah. That's because you had a sucky system. Right. But it's been a long time. And no, it's still a grudge match. And they, uh, they don't, want to build anything. They just want to tear something down. Mm. And that makes it a little easier for them. Whereas we have to make the case... Uh, this is the preferable alternative. They have that line in their propaganda, you know, Western democracy doesn't work. Our sort of managed democracy works better, right? You hear that a lot from the Chinese or from the Russians, but they don't really care. They don't care if anyone converts to what they do. This is keeping their domestic audiences in line, tearing down their opponents. Yeah, they're not really projecting their values or trying to convince people to yeah. adopt their system. Yeah. Which is, I think, one of the key gaps in strategic communications efforts around CVE mm. is everybody says, we can't just say what we're against, we have to say what we're for. But we seem to be having a very hard time saying what we're for in a way that's compelling and powerful and convincing enough. Well, the, the counter-narrative of... Uh, U.S. hostility to the uh, Muslim world is uh, uh, one that we should go after. And the um, experience of Iraq, unfortunately, uh, powerfully reinforced that the propaganda on drones, uh, which is largely false, uh, reinforces that. So we need to push back harder on um, just saying Islam is a religion of peace and we're not at war with the Muslim world. Got it. That was a great thing to say 10 years ago. Maybe it's time for a little update. Um, but I think that's the, the problem is that, you know, show the pictures of it turns out that um, at least the last time I looked, the wealthiest immigrant group in the United States turns out to be Palestinians. Right. OK. That doesn't sound like oppression to me, but you've got this whole narrative of the oppressive hegemon pushing back. And we need to do better at countering that. That's true across the board. I mean, 
the um, it would be fun to be the hegemon. I wonder what it would be like. I never got to do it when I was in government, but but we're not the hegemon. Um, the vulnerability for these people is that, um, and for some of our other opponents, is I think everyone has an innate sense of what is just, and their behavior is not just. So you need to call them. So I want to turn for a second on the issue of uh-huh. justice to yep. encryption. <clears throat> Obviously, uh-huh. that came up in the context of yeah. the terrorist attacks in San Bernardino. Right. Where do you come down on whether the U.S. government has the right to compel companies to to share the information that is on people's personal devices? And more broadly speaking, what does the conversation around encryption, how has it evolved since San Bernardino? Uh, there's a larger debate about how the Internet is changing. And a couple years ago, you had agreement in the U.N. that um, international law applies, the UN Charter applies, and national sovereignty applies to cyberspace. That was a profound political change from the uh, mythology of the 1990s that the, this was a borderless place where governments weren't needed and the multi-stakeholder model could uh, uh, do a perfectly fine job, all of which turned out to be uh, malarkey. So we're in this period of transition to figuring out what role is appropriate for states? It's more than what has been in the past. What are the responsibilities of companies and citizens? And there's some reluctance uh, to define that too precisely. Is it simply a carryover of the physical world? And in many ways it is, but there are significant differences that mean, mean that we need to rethink some things. In the specific Apple case, uh, Apple was served a warrant uh, it was their responsibility to service the warrant. If they didn't like the warrant, uh, they needed to go back to the court that issued it and ask for it to be uh, dropped. It took them two weeks to figure that out. Uh, so um, that was the right answer, and Apple can make a case. I mean, the rule here is justice was on a little bit of shaky grounds in asking for Apple's cooperation. Um, Apple was right to push back if their assertions that it would be expensive were true doesn't strike me as the best case to be uh, standing your ground on because, you know, it was linked to San Bernardino. It wasn't even the guy's phone. It was the health department's phone. But there are legitimate issues about how far could companies, how much respons- responsibility the companies had. have. And this includes not only encryption but online content. The two are linked. Encryption is a way to protect data. It allows, lets you control your data in a space where, so far, your data has largely been uncontrollable, right? And if you encrypt it, you can exert control. And so people are saying, oh, I don't want the U.S. surveilling my behavior. I don't want uh, people looking at my stuff, my laundry list or whatever. So I'm going to encrypt it, which is okay. But then you have to say, well, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Fourth Amendment, they say uh, the Fourth Amendment says no unreasonable searches. It doesn't say no searches. It says unreasonable. Courts determine what's reasonable. And in this case, a court determined it was reasonable. Apple should have complied. Um, you have a longer debate about should companies be building products that are not law enforcement accessible? Um, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, the, one of the goals of the companies is they kind of miss the old days where they didn't have 
social responsibilities and they'd like to not have these burdens shoved on them, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't want Apple or Google or Facebook having, do you want them to be censors? It doesn't make any sense, right? So, but we're, we're having trouble defining this line over who owns the data, who controls it, um, who has jurisdiction, uh, what are your rights to it? And that's part of the encryption debate. And, and also the line between free speech and not using platforms to incite people to violence. I, I think we're okay on that. I actually do, in that the, um, the U.S. Uh, does not have unlimited free speech, contrary to belief in Europe. It's that you can't incite specific acts of violence. It's uncomfortable. Nobody likes it. we got to live with it. And do you think that the whole episode around Apple and San Bernardino, but also more no. broadly the conversations around taking down terrorist propaganda, has created further tension between Washington and Silicon Valley? Is it getting better? I mean, you sort of get the sense that the relationship is is pretty tense. Well, and in some areas, in some areas, it's yeah. tense. And the the issue for the companies is that it's not just the Americans, and so. Uh, many, many countries have concerns about uh, encryption. Brazil, uh, India, China, big markets, right? And uh, these are places, the European Union uh, mixed. The Germans, uh, because of their historic experience, are uh, strongly pro-privacy. But Britain and France, the Netherlands, all have concerns similar to ours about encryption. So it's not just an American problem. And these people say... Uh, my citizens use this service that's provided by an American company. Um, how do my national laws apply to that? And the answer they are unwilling to accept is, well, you're out of luck. Your national laws don't apply. Um, I actually worry more in this instance about the European Union trying to get extraterritorial reach and dictate to American service providers what they can or cannot do. Um, that's not a world we want to live in. Um, and there's some indication that part of the motive for these European attitudes is um, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of a desire to tear down the big American companies, create space for their own national champions. Good luck with that. Uh, but the motives aren't entirely pure. But there is this common sense of uh, here's this new thing that we don't fully understand. We certainly don't control. Encryption exacerbates the problem. It's going to take us a long and painful debate to figure out how to respond to this. But it can't be just an American debate. It's interesting because we did a survey in 10 different countries on countering violent extremism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came from that was, number one, a sense that terrorists are effectively using digital platforms to spread their messages. Mm -hmm. Two, that social media companies aren't doing enough. But three, that it could be a very effective conduit for positive counter speech. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about how we sort of navigate some of these tensions and get the social media companies to step up and do more, but in a way that observes all of these, you know, concerns, mm -hmm. but also, you know, safeguards, frankly, for free speech um, and for innovation. It's difficult because one of the effects of the Internet has been to remove uh, a level of mediation on the information that's presented. So 30 years ago, you went to a journal, you went to the, a magazine, they had an editorial board, 
um, the editorial board had some sense of its responsibilities, and they would not publish certain things. And those codes have broken down the ability to intermediate the information that's available online doesn't exist. And it's a, a bit awkward to say uh, we want these social network companies to pick up that intermediary role. Um, they don't want it, uh, clearly. And in s some ways, it gets back to this initial thinking about the Internet. So no one felt they had a right to post whatever they wanted on the New York Times. You know, the New York Times made a choice about what it would publish. But people feel they have a right to post whatever they want on the Internet. And the big service providers come out of that milieu, come out of the 1990s, and the idea that this was a, a big open space where people could be free to do whatever they want. When they thought that, they thought it was going to end up being like Northern California and maybe a university campus on Northern California. It's not. And so one of the real problems we have is the Internet has unleashed um, hate speech, extremism. Um, how do you control that in a way that's consistent with uh, your human rights commitments? And people don't even want to talk about it. And are there international bodies that are credible enough to take that on? I mean, it would have That's to be the United one. Nations. We had this illusion at the end of the Cold War that we'd all move to the end of history and the end of ideological conflict. And it turns out it's not true. There are profound disagreements. I wonder if you floated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights today, if you would get a majority of nations to sign it. Certainly not the text as it exists now. So what body would you, the U.S. and the EU are split on the issues of data control and social network companies. I happen to think the Europeans are wrong. They feel exactly the opposite. Um, we don't share common views on terrorism with the Russians or the Chinese. Uh, we will never share common views with them on this. Uh, so no, there is no credible authority. And that means national solutions perhaps the one I've been pushing is like-minded nations. There is a core of democratic nations that do share values, but that's not the UN. That's not uh, a global system. So that might be what we have to do. It is interesting, though, because in the democracy and human rights, mm. you know, promotion space, we also talk about the end of history notion and how that has proven to not, you know, not really have borne out and how you have this reassertion of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So it's not just in terms of use of information mm -hmm. and data and platforms. It's also that people don't have the right to do programming or to support civil society organizations, you know, within their borders. So it's kind of infecting a broader set of issues and values even beyond um you know, messaging yeah. and narratives that we're talking about today. We're seeing a powerful push against uh, democratic institutions and yeah. values. And it's it's in better probably to say pushes because you have the rejection of those who support some of the more fundamental uh, Islamic tenets. You have the Chinese and Russian authoritarian alternatives. So we did not expect that the... Uh, the, the triumph in the Cold War would end up where it's ended up. But, yeah, we have this. And it, the, unfortunately, the solution for one is not necessarily the solution for the other. It helps to 
reassert, but it's hard. It helps to reassert the value of democracy and human rights. Hard to do that with the current presidential campaign. Let's come back to this one in six months. <laughs> we'll do another podcast in yeah, a couple months like from now. <laughs> right now. I hear that too when I'm traveling and talking about you yeah. know democracy and human rights issues. A lot of people are pushing back now and saying, "What authority does the United right. States, be, you know, have to be a standard bearer for these issues?" Given what's going on in your no, we've had election. a tremendous, tremendous damage to our legitimacy as the standard bearer. But that damage began uh, really in 2001, and it's continued until now. You can't look at the last 16 years and say. Uh, with a straight face. Uh, we can rebuild, but one, we have to admit that we have to rebuild. We can't stop. We have to stop pretending that we're, we're the emperor with our new clothes. And two, um, we have to change our behavior to rebuild. And that isn't something we're ready to do. So this actually goes to issues around surveillance as well and the way that we collect intelligence. Have you found in dealing with European counterparts that it's become much more difficult for the U.S. to lead on these issues because of what was disclosed by Snowden and what was sort of revealed about our intelligence gathering methods? It's become very ideological, mm -hmm. uh, very polemic, and the uh, the uh, polemical. The European left uh, sort of pining for the passing of communism uh, which we definitely squash communism if we didn't squash anything else. They still feel that way. So the European left, the Greens, the, the left-wing parties, Jeremy Corbyn, they would agree with you. But first, the European security agencies fully understand the value of surveillance and the risk they face. Uh, so no trouble there. Mm -hmm. And then once people get into government, a lot of times they tend to change their minds. It's it's one thing to be standing outside and saying surveillance is bad. You know, it's another thing when you're holding the bag. Mm. And when you see the range of threats that are facing you. Yeah, so I think it's, it's this larger... It, the Russians certainly don't mind pushing on this and reinforcing the notion of a wicked NSA that is spying on everyone. NSA isn't spying on everyone. They really don't want to know what's on your damn to-do list. You know, unless you are connected to terrorism, foreign espionage, or proliferation. Mm. But no one believes that. And particularly, it's, it's very much, it reminds me in some ways of Greenham Commons, where you had the uh, demonstrators protesting uh, American tactical nuclear weapons while ignoring the much more massive uh, deployment of tactical nuclear weapons by the Soviets. So it's ideolo ideological now. Um, if Corbyn should ever become prime minister of Great Britain, yes, you would see deep... He apparently doesn't understand that nuclear deterrence only works if you have nuclear weapons on the end of the missile. That was apparently a newsflash to him. Um, and so he probably doesn't understand the benefits of, uh, of surveillance. His, his, his people understand it, though. I mean, his... The career people know it. So um, Snowden did damage, but the Russians and I'd say the left uh, have exploited Snowden and have kept it alive much longer than, uh, than it deserves to be. We're in a larger conflict now, and it's not a Cold War conflict. You're not going to win this conflict by sending a carrier battle group. And this gets to the discussion you're having in your group in that for me, and it's a discussion we need to have at CSIS, 
a military response may not be the best response. We need to think about other tools. We need to maybe think a little like the Russians and think about opinion shaping and information. And um, it's hard for us to switch gears. We have a very militarized foreign policy. Uh, and the Russians and others exploit that. Um, hard, to, hard to deal with, but I think that ultimately uh, we can uh, – so I tracked uh, Ukraine, for example. Yeah. Russian propaganda in the Ukraine was initially very successful. They even got an op-ed in the New York Times about how the people in the Ukraine were, were actually fascists, right? Boy, that's a tremendous success. But over time, as propaganda and reality grow more and more divergent, the effort fails. And that's what will happen here is that uh, the Russians will assert things and their behavior will undermine their propaganda. That might be a good clue for how to deal with uh, Daesh. You know, they assert things, but their behavior undermines it, except for a, a very small group of people. So we have to stick to saying, here's what we do, here's what they do, you get to pick. Don't listen to what they say, don't listen to what we say, look at what we do. Yeah, we've actually talked to somebody that talked about just having the space where you can have that contestation of ideas. It's not about necessarily, you know, winning right. one ideological fight after the other, but it's allowing people to have access to all those different viewpoints and to choose for themselves what to believe. Yeah, and you just have to make the case that, you know, in America, nobody really cares about your religion. Nobody cares what hat you wear. Uh, you, you know, if I was going to ban something, I'd ban full-body tattoos before I banned anything else. Jim, I really want to thank you for a very fun and wide-ranging conversation. I think you've helped us understand the way that all of these things come together and how violent extremism, that as we understand it, relates to left-wing extremism and right-wing extremism and connects back to these major technological and policy and values changes at the global level. So thank you very much for being on the program today. Thanks. I look forward to the outcome of your project.